Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hi, this is Stephen Slate. I'm here with Michelle Dunbar, co-author of The Freedom Model. Uh, She's been involved with BRI, the uh, research institute here behind The Freedom Model, for as long as I know. Forever. Forever. (laughs) For as long as it's existed. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Steve. I'm Um, so happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy to be here too. So why don't you give me a bit of your story. Um, Why are you still here (laughs) working on helping people with substance use problems that you must have developed this passion? Uh, There must be a story behind that. Absolutely, there is. Um, It's a a pretty long story. Uh, Like Mark Sheeran, I grew up... uh, in a recovery household. My dad was a was a heavy drinker when I was very young, right up until I was about nine or 10 years old. And then he was arrested for DWI. Now that was in the 1970s. And back then, you didn't typically get arrested for DWI. They typically uh, picked you up and brought you home. You could have crashed a vehicle. You could have, you know, harmed an entire family and they'd say you know just sober up you'll be fine um but unfortunately i think that they'd seen my dad a little too often and they decided well maybe we better put this guy in jail um so so that started his long road of recovery going he was mandated to uh, detox and then to aa meetings and, um, and so basically from the age of 10 years old, I grew up in the cult of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I do call it a cult. And I was actually programmed to become a drunk. I was told that 11, 12 years old, that the way I held my coffee mug, the, the way that I reacted to certain situations, that if I ever tasted a drop of alcohol, I would drink uncontrollably until I would be in jail or an institution or that I would die. So if you can imagine being told that repeatedly throughout your you know, pre-adolescence and adolescence, it goes to figure that by 18 years old, I drank to get drunk frequently. And I had a really good time actually. Um, and frequently I would drink to the, all the poor schmucks in AA that couldn't have a drink. And, um, and it was a lot of fun for a little while. Uh, but I did end up getting in trouble. I did go to jail. I did end up in the hospital a couple times. I did go into doing drugs and other things, which I was also told what happened to me because my dad had a drug problem as well. It would and happen to you. It would. They told me it would happen to me. Right down to, I tried uh, amphetamines, just speed. I tried speed. And, and I didn't like it. And it didn't occur to me at that point in time that I was picking and choosing. Because I was told if I tried any drug at all, that I would, I was, I had an addictive personality. And if I tried any drug at all, I was gonna be hooked on that drug. Um, but even then there were certain drugs I tried that I didn't like. That, you know, that I, I, that I didn't like the feeling. I did not like amphetamines. And, you know, at that point in time, you know, people would be like, you got to try this. You got to try this. I, I, I didn't like ecstasy all that much. I didn't like, um, I really didn't like acid. I mean, I, I tried that a couple times and I thought it, la- I was kind of lazy. I thought it lasted too long. I preferred shrooms, um, but I didn't use them the way that I was told I was going to use them. So even then, you know, looking back, I thought, like now I can look back and figure out that everything I learned was complete crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, make a long story short, which is too late for that now, I <laughs> ended up 
failing out of college after three years. I was in an on and off academic probation. I was a very heavy substance user. I got a bipolar diagnosis at 20. And um, so my prognosis was terrible. Um, they wanted to put me on lithium and all, you know, antidepressants, which were up and coming in the late 80s. And I rejected all of it because I was told I wasn't allowed to drink, you know, and I thought, well, drinking for me is the only thing that makes life worth living. I legitimately thought that back then. <laughs> so, um, so if I can't drink, then I'll, you know, I'll be suicidal and I'll end up dying. So I might as well keep drinking and not take the meds. Um, and, uh, so I, I ended up finally failing out and went to my father for help. And at that point in time, he was singing a different tune. I had gone to AA or I had gone to school. I ended up, I went through different majors and I ended up in psychology trying to fix myself. After I got the bipolar diagnosis, I'm like, I'll go into psychology. I'll no, figure this out. <laughs> It's very common. It is very common. I joined the psych club, and that was the biggest bunch of wackos I've ever met. But it, we had a lot of fun, but we were all very heavy substance users. Um, you know, trying to better our lives through pharmaceuticals, which seems to be the case with a lot of people that go into that profession. Um, but we, you know, so I learned about the addiction disease. I learned all of these things. And my father told me, well, addiction's not a disease and nobody is actually powerless. And I said, well, really? So I suppose that means you can drink. Like I was, I thought I had a gotcha there, you yeah. know? Um, Cause I, I went to school, I know that he's wrong and he thinks he knows everything. And you know, I'm 22 years old and every 22 year old knows more than their, you know, 50 year old parent. And he said, yes, that's what that means. It means I could drink if I wanted to, I don't want to. And I said, well, that's crap, you're, you're lying to me. And you know, this was his, his version of an intervention, I suppose, so I, I didn't speak to him for a few months after that you know, whole little episode. I thought he was full of crap. Um, but then I was intrigued because I, he had a bunch of people around him that were kind of doing AA, but he was doing something different with them. And, and this was at the Baldwin house? It was, it was, it was, uh, you know, and, and it, I'm not gonna lie, I was 22 and this was a bunch of young guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I, so I'm intrigued. These are young guys, they're all, most of them are very attractive and, um, and they seem to be having a good time. And Mark was one of them. My husband was another one, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. um, and and I just I just wanted to be happy. That was all I wanted. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to. I was a kind of a chaos junkie, if you will, and I was tired of that lifestyle. I, I you know my last semester out at college was me at a community college while all my roommates were at the, you know, were juniors and seniors in college. And, and I had failed out and I just, I just wanted to do something better with myself. And, uh, and so I, so I kind of kept watching, kept observing and in all of my schooling that had told me that this, that, that I could never get better. Mm -hmm. I mean, it I, between, you know, the counselor I was seeing at college and, um, you know, the, the, the couple of meetings that I had gone to, um, and, and, you know, my, the, my dad's AA friends ringing in my ear, we're saving you a seat. Um, you know, I, I, I thought, holy shit at 22, my life's going to be over. It's gonna be over and and I did uh, contemplate suicide for several months um, and then I went to AA and I didn't want to be a part of that I did go end up going to AA and I met a couple women and and they didn't really agree with my dad and they wanted me to stay away from those boys they actually had a term for them they called them the young guns uh -huh. All the Jerry's kids. They were all, they called them Jerry's kids and the young guns. And and, <laughs> and they thought that, you know, my father was, was kind of infamous at that point because he would not, he refused to call himself an alcoholic. Um, and, and he's, you know what he's telling those boys? He's telling them they can be okay, that there's nothing wrong with them. 
and uh, and I was like, you're right, my father's crazy. And yeah. so I, I stayed with these women for a period of about three months. Now, I was on, on the down low. I was seeing Bob, who ended up being my husband. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was kind of sneaking that. So, you know, I, which I knew nobody would approve of because that's the way I am. And So uh, you were almost in a rival group? I was. <laughs> I was. We were called this group of women, mm-hmm. which you have most young women substance users that come into these programs don't get along with other women yeah they just don't and and all the women were like you have to learn how to be with the women you Mm -hmm. have to learn how to be so i did i was like i was trying to be a good little AA person and so i i hung out with these women and they were all it was it was crazy i liked my drug using women friends way better um because this was like a bunch of judgmental catty it was horrible. But they called us the Steel Magnolias. They, these those guys were the young guns. So now you, you got the time frame. It's 1990. Those are the movies that were out. We were the Steel Wait. Magnolias, which really paints Who a was picture. It? Was Dolly Parton in Steel Magnolias? <laughs> what am I thinking? It was, Ju- yes. was Julia Ju- Roberts. Julia Roberts. Um, oh, Kath, Kath, Kathy so, Bates. And was she? She yeah. was Olympia in it. Olympia Dukakis. Olivia, Olympia Dukakis. Is that right? Yep, I, I can't remember all the people that were in it. I just saw. Oh no no, um, what's her name? She was in all I don't know all of the. Uh, oh God, Sally Fields. Oh Sally Fields. I, I want to say she was in it too. By the way, I saw Sally Field on the street recently uh, in no New kidding. York, and she was stunningly beautiful. And when I've seen her on TV past few years, I thought she looked very old. <laughs> Me too. That's what I was going to ask you. She looked. Younger than she does on TV. Oh my gosh! Side man. note. Here. Yeah, yeah, but that's a cool side note. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we. But were, so you guys were the so steel, we were steel magnolias. magnolias and, that's so funny. Oh my gosh, it was. And, and I have to say that first summer was, you know, I went the first few few months that I went to A where I was really trying to stay away from my dad and that whole crew was rough. Um, the, the only bright spot in it, and I think the only thing that kept me going was my relationship with Bob, which I wasn't supposed to be in. Yeah. And and everybody, you know. And Bob was sober. He was sober. Point. So there was this, he 13 stepped me. And, um, and the truth was, I am not a, a, a wallflower. I chased him. I made sure that we got together. <laughs> it was not the other way around. He really <laughs> tried to be good. And I was like, screw those people. It's none of their business what I do. Um, but but they, when people found out about us, they gave us a really hard time. And, uh, and you know, my at that time, my answer was, but I knew, I know that I'm done with drugs and alcohol. I know I'm done with that lifestyle. I, like you, I thought, even then I thought, I'm doing this because I like it. I'm doing this because I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I got to the point that I didn't want to do it anymore and I didn't like it. And I sought ways to stop it. So, you know, I just did what I had been told that I had to do to stop it, which was go to AA. But had nobody told me that from the beginning of my life that I had to go to AA to stop it, I probably would have just did what most of my roommates did in college, which was they got out of college, they started their lives, they realized that getting drunk every night doesn't fit with that, yeah. and they just moved on. Um, so, so, but I, I went to AA, and it was funny because I, you're told when you go to AA that the people you did drugs with, the people that you partied with were not your friends. They were not your real friends. They were not All your you real friends. All you had in common was drugs. That's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah. And you can't have any contact with those people. And my experience was the exact opposite. It was, I had a lot of really good friends. We just happened to party together. We just happened to do drugs together. Um, yeah. But the friends that I met now, looking back, the friends that I met in AA were more like that. They were, as long as you're toeing the line and you know what we say in AA, we can be your friends. But once you stop, we're not your friends anymore. And I see that a lot. So that's just a little side note there, but I know isn't you're, that you're right? Yeah. So and actually, on that topic too, uh, because it's all that's that's this is tying into people, places, and things. Right? Yes. And you know, I was told uh, not to go back to my um, 
my club music stuff, which oh, I love. Oh, that's right. I was a raver kid. Yeah. I absolutely loved the music. And, um, you know, people warned me that, you know, I wouldn't, like, oh, you go around there, you know, like, as if you just go there to do drugs or you can't go there without doing drugs. And at about a year sober, um, after I was here at the, yeah. at, at the retreat, I went to Miami, Florida to this music, electronic music festival for about a week. Um, oh my there's God. like 50 parties every night. And I just partied all night, every night without any drugs, any alcohol, because I love the music. Right. And I you like so, the atmosphere. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I really love the music. There's there people from all over the world that I wanted yeah. to see were there. And um, I don't know. I'm just taking a detour, a little side, well, a little side thing. But it's 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 odd. They want you to change everything and be in their cult, essentially. Exactly, and give up your whole world. Give up, yeah. If there was any relation to drugs or all, even if there wasn't, they say these things are gonna trigger you. Like when they say, don't be around your family because uh, you fight with your brother, and right. he's gonna trigger you to drink. Like so, just don't don't spend the time with him. He's a trigger. And like, even if you didn't drink with your brother, or you yeah, know, it's like exactly, exactly. I, the the reason I guess this gets, this ties into the reason I'm doing what I do today is because number one, I ended up with a problem with drugs and alcohol because of what I was taught as a child, not because of some genetic component, not because of something wrong in my brain. Um, it was because I was taught if I ever tried these things, I'd be out of control. So yeah. right from go. I was out of control. And then I get into A and I'm taught, yeah, you're, I get that you're 22 years old, but your life basically is over. You can't, you know, I, I was my best friend from college. I was in her wedding and I, you know, I was nine months sober, nine months in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my AA friends were like, you cannot go to her wedding. I'm like, I'm a bridesmaid in her wedding. I, I'm not going to tell her I'm not coming. And they're like, oh, this is a trigger. You're, you're going to relapse. And I said, to hell with it. I said, I'm going to her wedding. We had to spend a weekend with my friends from college, with some of my party buddies. And we had a blast. And I didn't have a drink. And I didn't smoke pot. I didn't do PCP. I didn't drop acid. I didn't do... And, and there were people doing that crap around me. And I was like, you know, I'm not interested. I didn't want to do it. Now I did bring my taboo AA boyfriend. I did bring him. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, he and I will be sober together. And we'll have a lot of fun. And we had a lot of fun. And, um, and I had fun with people just like you. I, I loved... I, I mean, I was with people that I loved. Yeah. I mean, they, they were my friends. So so that's the other part of it is, you know, when I see young people specifically, and this is part of the reasons that I work with families so much. Yeah. Um, when I see young people that are struggling, you know, and maybe they're struggling, maybe they're not. Maybe somebody just caught them with drugs in their room or, you know, maybe they got really drunk and you know, parked the car where they shouldn't have. I've done that a couple times. Yeah. Um, and that's scary. I get it. But God, don't stick them in rehab. It don't tell somebody at 20 years old that their life is over. Well, yeah. And then also they, um, they do the discipline based on the people, places, things. Yeah. Idea. You can't go here. You can't hang out with this person. You can't do that. And, um, and, and then that just further brings them down the spiral of like, well, what is there? Exactly. You know, and it's either you break with all of that and say, screw it, I'm just going to go back to heavy use. That's right. Or you let yourself sort of be crushed and and your life be crushed in every which way that that doesn't kind of matter in the bigger picture. Right. Right? It's, it is, it's They make it so all you have, like I felt like after I got like, when I got sober, and I even hate to use that term, but you know, back then that's what it was called. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was giving up the things that meant the most to me. And and then they were asking me to give up everything else. Everything else, yeah. You know, even even hanging out with my brother because I had done drugs with him. Yeah. Um, and he was a lot younger than me and they're like, oh no, 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 you can't be with him anymore. Yeah. You know what? <clears throat> it makes me think of a theme I've been thinking about a lot lately where, you know, and I, it doesn't sound like it happened in your case, but it sounds like it's just a part of the overall thing. Um, 
the substance use problem gets used as this wedge issue to, you know, if you get an into somebody's life with that, then yeah. you can remake them in all these other ways. And that's what AA does that. The 12 step programs just do that as a matter of. Well, it's like the no General relationship thing. Yeah. Yeah, no you're not ready. Your sponsor will tell you when you're ready to get involved with somebody else. You got to take care of yourself first. Yeah. You got to figure things out. And at the, you know, and the truth of the matter is, do most relationships that start in the recovery community work out? Probably not. But do they not work out at 50%? Well, 50% of all relationships don't work out. Sure. So in the general population. So, you know, I can look back now. I've been, my husband and I have been married 25 years. 25 years. Yeah. We've been together almost 30 years. It worked out. It worked out. <laughs> it worked out okay. I, you know, neither of us went off the deep end. None of us ended up in jail. We didn't crash cars. We didn't go on, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, they, you're right. It is a wedge. It is, I'm going to tell you how you can live your life. And and for most young people, it, that makes drugs look so much more attractive. It really does. Well, and not just drugs. It, it kind of the whole addict lifestyle. Like, okay, yeah. I'm going off the grid in yes. my own crazy direction. I'll live on the street if that's what it takes. But I'm not going to let people run every way that I exist. Exactly. You know. And, exactly. And, and I and I stuck it out. I did stick it out. Um, be, probably mostly because of the people, because of Mark. Um, Mark became one of my best friends. And from what you were saying, you were very ready to quit. I too. was. I was. I, I, I stuck it out in this business, you oh, know, okay. doing the research. Yeah. But in the beginning, I stuck it out s sober. I, I didn't go back to the lifestyle. As, as awful as it was the first few months in AA, I didn't go back to the lifestyle because I really was done. Yeah. And but I, I think that that being in the the, the program made it definitely it definitely made going back to drugs more attractive to me. I sure. definitely, you know, the cravings, I thought about it. And so I've actually said on the phone to people who have talked about cravings, I'm like, Are you going to meetings? And they'll be like, Yeah, and I'm like, cravings are worse after the meetings, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, stop going. Yeah. You know, I hear that all the time from people. You they, do. I don't the, think about it until I'm at a meeting. The crave is after a meeting. Yeah. Um, so, when did you actually um, start working with the retreats? Well, really much from the beginning. I was one of the original, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but. Um, my dad was doing the Baldwin Research Project of 1990 and he had this list of people and there were only two women in it and apparently I was one of them uh -huh. and um, you know where he was he was giving us the, the the message that we could be okay that there was nothing wrong with yeah. us and then having us kind of go out and do good works with people help people it didn't necessarily have to be you know in the meetings or anything like that other than um, I mean it could be you know, I, I gave people rides to the grocery store. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, there was, there was a lot of different stuff we did. So I was part of that. And every woman that kind of came into our fold, they opened the retreat in 92. And I can remember the first female guest was, I think her name was Beth. And they called me. I was working. I had a job. I say a real job. I had a, you know, I was a, I think at that point in time, I was a secretary I was a, or a fundraiser at a local theater and mm -hmm. they called me and they were like, you got to come out here and meet this woman. You got to help this woman because in AA, the women stay with the women and men stay with the men. And, um, and so that was 92. And that from that point forward, every woman that came into the retreat, uh, she, they were mine. I had to meet them. I had to spend time with them. I went to, I was, we were still going to AA meetings. We had kind of had our own at that point. We were yeah. like this, that we were kind of like this offshoot yeah, I don't know. We were we were kind of blasphemers in the mm -hmm. AA world, but and you were also sort of AA uh, fundamentalists. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, or we we a little we, in some way or no? Yeah, we we kind of we we had the original manuscript from 1935 that we we started backpedaling because so much of the treatment world was was really odd and yeah. and and the the whole idea of treatment was very strange. Um, so we were trying to go back to the fundamentals 
to really, they were studying what, what works and what doesn't. Unfortunately, the first step is you're, you're powerless. So, so the steps as they yeah. were didn't really work. Yeah. Um, it was more the fellowship part of it that we thought worked. Mm-hmm. You know, helping people, one drunk helping another. Um, turns out that really didn't work as well as we thought either. But, yeah. <laughs> but this is in Mark's podcast. I went through these same <laughs> things with him, and he was saying pretty much we had to take out the first step from yeah. the beginning. Right from the beginning. Right yeah. from the beginning. And, uh, and you know, we were, I was raised Catholic, uh, but I had left Catholicism, I had left the faith. But I had some faith. I, I, I struggled because I'm a researcher, a scientist kind of person. So, um, so, so we kept some of the God stuff for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and you know, a lot of people are like, was that helpful to you? And I'm like, I think sometimes it might have been. Um, but I think it also confused things for me mm-hmm. significantly because I, I'm not somebody that faith came naturally to me. So um, it just... It kind of added a weird spiritual, you know what I mean, like a uh, kind of a. I hate to say make believe, but it, it added like this this yeah. this feel that was otherworldly to it. That I think, as a young person, you know, was was attractive to me at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> um. Okay. So. Okay. So you were working with. Um, most of the women that came yes. into this, or all of them, for quite Pretty some much. time. <laughs> yep. Um, and and then and then what? And then you know. And now I, I, I remember you, so I'll just go to where I remember. Yeah. Which is I remember you um, at one point taking over as director of one of the retreats in the early two thousand. I did. I did. And, or the retreat at the time. It was. That's the retreat, right. right. The we, retreat. It was. Yeah. It, Twin Rivers was. It was Hegman. The Hegeman was our only house at that point in time. I had left for a while. I had I had children. I had built a career. Um, then I stayed home with my children. And around 2002, um, when my youngest was going to preschool, I came back. To, you know, I came to BRI and uh, started actually working mm-hmm. uh, for the company. Or volunteering, but full time. <laughs> you got to get paid for it to be considered working. But well, we vol- I volunteered full time, and I was in the guest services office. So I would just take calls from people looking for help and family members looking to to help. That was two thousand two. In two thousand and three, I took over as director of Twin Rivers. Mm-hmm. That was, and I think I was director for six months. I was supposed to be an interim director, mm-hmm. um, and I, you worked there at the time. You were there, I think. Yeah. Um, and we had all volunteer staff, and uh, it was they were the days were very long, uh, but it was it was a uh, it was fun. I think it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I just want to stop there and. It- I don't want you to sing your own praises, but I'll sing them, right? And so, no, because I, I've i had people come at me recently. You guys are just in this for the money. Oh, yeah, I love that. And, um, but you're basically saying from, you know, first of all, you were just interested in hanging out, hanging out with these people to get over your own problem. Mm-hmm. But then you were recruited basically at... To help every woman that came through yep. for several years. Yes. No pay. No pay. And then you came back and you worked in the office and then at the retreats for no pay for a while. Yeah. And then started to get paid probably in 2003 at some point. Yeah, right, right? around 2000, beginning of 2003. Um, I got paid $500 a month. My daycare bill was 1000 Yeah. So, <laughs> so I paid yeah, to work here. Exactly. So I just wanted, yeah, no, I wanted to point that out. Uh, a lot of people don't think about the years of sacrifice that, that did go in, or even if it's not sacrifice, you wanted to do it. I did. It's not sacrifice. But the point is that you had a passion um, for uh, helping people with these problems. And it's not. It's not like this is a, you know, I there was a lucrative job to get into. <laughs> I tell people all the time, I can make money a lot easier ways. I can tell you that right now I have marketable skills. I could definitely, you know, I, I'm a decent fundraiser. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was a really pretty good legal assistant. Um, I was a financial analyst at one point in time. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways to make money. 
this is not a way I would recommend anybody to try and make money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but but yet yeah, that and that's actually a trigger point for me too. Sometimes when I hear people say that um, that you're yeah you're just trying to peddle those retreats and I'm like you know what you can have my solution for free here it is I'll I'll send it to you <laughs> if you don't have the money you know and the other thing is 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 you know just you just just ask Dr. Stanton Peel how if you can make money writing books. Um, you know, it's, sure. it's not the most, it's, it's not the most lucrative thing to do. And it, it's a labor of love. It truly yeah, is. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so then you, you've continued with the company formally ever, you haven't had a, a time off since nope. 2003, right? You've been really? here the whole time. I've been here the whole time and I worked in just about, I joke, I worked in just about every position yeah. with the exception of, uh, construction. I, I don't yeah. build things. I'm not good at that. But I, I have but been... But your in, husband does that. Yeah, my husband does that. Uh. He's great. He is like jack of all trades, electrician, plumber. Um, my house needs a lot of repair, but the retreat houses don't. So uh, <laughs> Now, here is uh, something I've known for a long time. You are the go-to person for when families call. Yes. For a long time. So you have the most experience in our organization Probably pretty much, I yeah. think. Uh, I feel like Mark, I don't know his level of experience with families. He must have some, but I he think- has a lot. He has a lot. We, the two of us, really, Mark and I have been together as a team working with people since the beginning. And so we've both had a lot of experience throughout the 90s working with families. Me with the mm-hmm. women's families, him with the men's okay. families. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I, around, I think it was 2008, 2009. People started to ask me, "Can you write a, a book for the family?" Yeah, um, and I thought, oh, you know, I don't know. I I had written the with uh, with another another person here. I had written the the continuing education program we used to have. Yeah, I developed that. So I had developed things before, but I thought, hey, you know, I don't know if I can write something for the family. So that was my first real experience trying to write something on my own and I and I try, I wanted to tackle the things that families struggle with which is feelings of guilt and fear and you, you know just I, I needed to, to show them that their loved one could be okay yeah. that there really was a solution and I didn't want them to be fearful of our solution because it is so different families are in a complete and utter panic when they yes. send their loved one for help yes we did actually for for a couple years. I, I developed. I so I wrote the the first family book. I think it was around 2010. I finished it, and we've just provided it for free to every family. Anybody who asked for it, people that called that didn't even send someone here, and it had people really did like it. And then we offered a two day workshop that I put on. And I tell people this. I was so anxious. I'm I'm good in a crowd, and I'm good teaching substance users you know and, and I've, I've been a presenter before so I'm I'm good working with substance users but I had such anxiety before my first workshop and it was full I had I think three I only limited it to three families because I wanted to be able to work with them individually and out of these three families there were like there was like a mom dad sister you know these are families as the people at our retreats there was a mom dad sister there was another set of parents there was a woman, and there was a woman for her fiance, who happened to be a licensed clinical social worker. Uh-huh. So I <laughs> had so oh, I, I'm leading the weeks leading up to this. I got a rash. I was so nervous. I had to go see a doctor and go on prednisone. I mean, I had such anxiety because you thought the social worker was yeah. going to be. Rough, I thought it was or... just going to be a train wreck, yeah. and it was tremendous. It was, it was such a great experience, and. Um, and I had developed these PowerPoint slides and, you know, and we got such good discussions going and, you know, I kept in touch with those families for a while. Yeah. It was, it, they, they, it, it was great. It's a great service. I want to be able to do it again. It's incredibly time consuming. It, it would take me, you know, I would do it on a Thursday and Friday. It'd take me that whole week before to prep, to prep for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but you know, as I got more experienced at it, it did, wouldn't take me quite as long. Um, but it was a it was a great service, and then with the freedom model came out, I thought, oh, I have to update the book. 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, there's there's a lot more stuff. And, 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 you know, we can't give families the freedom model book. Yeah. And, and tell them why, Steve. Because the first line. <laughs> because the first line says that anybody can moderate their use of drugs or alcohol. Right. And, and without a doubt, unequivocally, uh, however Mark <laughs> phrased it. And I said, you can't start the book with that. And he's like, well, I'm starting it with that. I'm doing it. And I said, well, then I definitely got to write a book for the families because that's, I, I'm not sure it's, if it's completely fear, but it's something you said earlier about wanting to take control. Yeah. And families want that control. They want to say, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I think that's the hardest, that's the hardest thing working with families is, is a family will say, well, so-and-so can't drink. So-and-so can't use heroin. And I'm like, well, that's clearly not the case because they are. Yeah. So do you want us to tell them they can't? Everybody's been telling them they can't. That doesn't work. Exactly. Um, that's that's a really important point, right? Mm -hmm. um, I got into an argument recently over email with... Uh, some of the alternative recovery people <laughs> from the email list. And, uh, you know, they said, well, I wouldn't tell somebody who's tried to moderate again and again and again to try it again. And, um, some, and somebody beat me to it, beat me to the punch. Oh, they did. Yes. Uh, Which is encouraging. Yeah, Ken. And did. So, yeah, so, and so uh, somebody says back, well, then why do you tell people who failed at, tr at being abstinent again and again and again to try abstinence again. And it really is true. It is. Um, and so really the solution is let's get away from telling people what substance use choice is right for them and let's let them figure it out on their own. And that is very hard for families with the panic that they're in that, to, that let, to allow that to happen. But ultimately... I look back and when I, I failed to quit many times right. that I was being forced to quit. Right. And the last time, all of the conditions were, were the same. I was facing down probation yet again, a suspended sentence yet again that could send me to jail. If, if right. I just, you know, and, and these things hadn't stopped me all the previous times. They did keep me sober. The first time they kept me sober for a little while. Um, but you know, I'm just the conditions from the family, this, that, the other, all the threats were on me. So I faced the same conditions, but yep. the difference for me at the retreat was, Hey Steve, why don't you figure out what makes you happier living without drugs or living with them? Give yourself the chance to really explore this, discover yes. it and, um, and then do what works best for you. And, uh, and I decided on abstinence. I maintained full abstinence for about four and a half years. And I decided I would drink like, you know, normal Like person. a normal person. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and it has, ne you know, hasn't well, been an issue. So. And that's what we, that's what I, I, that's great. I explain to families, I do say that to them. I say, well, this person has tried abstinence. And, and they don't, they didn't find happiness there, so they didn't stick it out. Yeah. So, so what we do that's so different is we help them to figure out Jeez, what is it you really like about the lifestyle you're leading? Because there's a whole lot of things that could be. Yeah. And and I really do explain to families just because somebody hasn't stopped doesn't mean they can't. It just means they haven't. Yeah. That's it. Um. I, I actually got into it with a with with this uh, father of, and it's a very sad situation. I'm I'm literally anxious about it because it was recently. This father, his daughter has a problem with opiates. She's been to treatment before. She's overdosed. She's about 28 years old. And, you know, she found us. Yeah. She's like, this makes sense to me. Um, and this father called and he made sure he made sure I knew that he was a doctor of something or other. And and he talked about uh, and I'm gonna get into why this is another kind of thing that that triggers me, so to speak, <laughs> to use that. Um, and, and he was giving me the third degree about why, you know, he doesn't think our program is right for her because 
you know, we don't have any letters after our name. We're not doctors like he is. And wh- where do we get all our information? And and so I, you know, I went toe to toe with him, you know, about his concerns. And that is that we're going to tell her she can use heroin. And um, and I said, well, she she was told that the last treatment program she couldn't use heroin and she overdosed on heroin. On heroin. Yes. So how was that effective? How did that help her? And and he said, well, she can't not use heroin. And I'm like, then why bother to send her to treatment at all? Yeah. I mean, it makes no sense. So this doctor, unfortunately, spent a half hour of my time arguing with me and then decided that he wasn't willing to, to, to invest in our program for her, um, that he was going to send her to another treatment program mm-hmm. down the road that was similar to the one she just got out of. And, I, you know, I genuinely hope she survives it. I yeah. genuinely hope she does. So, I do too. Uh, and I just have to step in about doctors and credentials and letters after names. Yes. And both Stanton Peel, PhD, and Peter Venturelli, PhD. I'm reading these names off of the back of the book. But yes. I do know them. We do. They're wonderful. They're wonderful people. <laughs> they were both blown away by our book and the evidence that we amassed for our positions. Um, and they have both been writing about addiction and substances for decades peter for college textbooks yes uh stanton peel uh for different kind of more mass market books uh and journals and peter's been teaching for decades about these topics uh and stanton has taught lectured as well and uh nyu and new school so these are phds they do believe in the program uh they were really peter was emotionally moved Yes, he was. He loved it. Um, So, but so basically, um, we're, um, I feel a little bit like I can get a little miffed by families when I'm working with somebody because I'm directly uh, instructing, presenting with people who have problems and uh, I'm trying to give them the space to figure out what they want and sometimes have families pressuring them a lot and I can get a little miffed and I like to turn to you because I because you're a mom yes and um and I and say you know hopefully Michelle maybe you um maybe sometimes I'll say why why don't you talk to Michelle because I because I have to it's a little bit tough for me I I get I and I I understand what the families are going through but I, I get a little short and I don't, I don't want to be that way. So <laughs> Well, you know, you. It, it's it's so hard with families because I, you're right. I, I think it does help me that I relate to, you know, I relate to the families. My kids are grown. You know, I have they're in their 20s. I don't I don't have any control. But what I remind families is is you haven't had any control over your child literally since they could walk. Yeah. You, you, you know, so so if you genuinely think that you're going to have control over your 20-year-old or 30-year-old or 50-year-old, because we do get people that mm-hmm. you were working with that where their parents are intimately involved in their lives and they're my age, you know, they're 50 years old, um, then you're wasting your energy. Yeah, I just had a friend who is probably 20 years cycling in and out of treatments. Yeah. Uh, and is parents never lengthened the leash right uh and he passed oh so and it's not their fault no no of course not you know they were doing what they thought was best they were doing what they thought was best and he was reacting the way people yeah would re well this is not everybody some people are more independent minded than others Mm -hmm. but everybody's independent and um and he's going to keep doing what their heart tells them yeah. they want to do. Um, so it's a, weird, it's a weird little field to negotiate the relationship between the family and, um, and the, the person with the substance use problem. Yeah. And I think because um, the idea of being an addict, it's, it's, socially, it's a socially created reality. If, if you were on a desert island, the way I like to think about this, oh, and great. you could yeah. just pluck poppies and eat them all day long, um, you know, uh, and you were all alone. 
you would never see yourself as having a problem. And if you were eating so many poppies that you are nodding out and not fishing, and you start right. realizing you're, you're starving, you'd probably slow down a bit on the poppies. <laughs> you are right. You'd probably make an adjustment. There wouldn't yeah. be this, well, I'm an addict. You know, there'd be like, oh, I got to be a little more awake so I can fish tomorrow. I don't, you know, and, and yeah. it's like, but when, um, you know, I think that people would naturally adjust to some degree without this. Yeah. You know, just uh, to the needs of their life. But then once, but then there's this social thing where somebody points at someone and says, you know, you're an addict. And it's usually with care that they do that. Yes, of course. It's with care and concern and love. Hey, I think you're doing too much. And then, but we all have this natural instinct that when somebody says, stop doing that, we want to do it more. Absolutely. Or we, we feel bad about ourselves, so we make up excuses why we do it. Yeah. Well, I'm so depressed. Well, you, you made me angry, so I needed yep. a drink. Right? And, and we come up with excuses and rationalizations. Um, and so we're never going to live um, in a non-social reality with people with substance use problems. That's so right. It's a, it's a thing that needs to be negotiated, this dynamic. And... Uh, you put together the family program, which if they read it, I think it'll really help them. Absolutely. You know, to understand uh, what we are teaching on our end and so they can be supportive and supportive means stop telling them they're an addict. Right. Stop telling them that they better work really hard to fight addiction. Right. And start, you know, treating them as fully abled and saying, what do you want for yourself, mister? It's your life. What are you going to do? Yeah, I, I think... You in your TED talk, you talk about the playground effect, and and I I talk about that a lot with families as well, and that is, you know, the, the, don't make everything that happens this huge big thing. And I'm I'm, I'm getting because yeah. there's so much hype now. Yeah. I'm getting families that call me. Oh my gosh, I just found pot in the, my 16-year-old's yeah. pocket. And he's smoking pot. Oh my God, what should I do? Well, don't send him to rehab. Yeah. Whatever you do, don't send him to rehab. And, and then they say, but isn't it a gateway drug? And I'll be like, guess what? If you send him to rehab, there's a good chance he's going to be doing other stuff by the time he gets home. Um, you know, I, that's rehab's more the gateway. <laughs> that's the gateway. It really is. Yeah. You know, I want to say, I just want to add a little personal experience. Don't you said don't make everything a big thing. I snorted heroin uh, when I was about two weeks out of the retreat, and I was in the fellowship. I was living in uh, the local area, involved yeah. with with the uh, retreat still yeah and I managed to keep that completely secret and if I had gotten caught oh yeah you would have been booted baby booted out (laughs) yeah been a disaster a big mark of disgrace but I managed to keep it secret and I just learned from it I said you know it ain't what I want to be doing it's I'm I'm trying to figure out how to be happy without this that's a great point and yeah um you know, uh, so nobody was there. Nobody made it a big deal for me. Yeah. I just learned from it. That happens, too, when people leave the retreat. They're kind of testing the waters. And, you know, it, it, you know, we might get a call from, you know, from a, a parent. And, oh, gosh, you know, I just, the, they just got home. And it's been, a, they did good for a couple of weeks. And now they're, you know, they, they drank. Or, um, and my, my answer is always, it's part of the learning. It's part it's, of the learning process, it's, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, if, if, you know, what's, have this person call us if they feel like they're struggling because you can always, you can call us forever. Um, but, but definitely don't panic. Don't, don't act like, you know, three drinks is the end of the world because three drinks is not a bag of heroin. No, it, is <laughs> it isn't. It doesn't equal that. And, and, um, you know, and three drinks doesn't equal 10 drinks. No. It's, it's, you ha- that's why reading for Nor any, does it equal yeah. like a week of drinking. No, it doesn't. It equals one night of drinking. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, because it's this idea of relapse. So that's why the family program is so important for families to read.
Yeah, and you wrote it because it does not say in the beginning anybody can moderate as well. <laughs> it does not say in the beginning. It's worked in through there. People do get it that message. It eases into that message. It does. It but does. with the people who have problems, we strike them with that message hard at the beginning because yes. we want them to know we're, we're doing something different here and it's about what you want. And That's it's right. almost like the, the, if you are afraid when you read it, then it should really make you think, why, why am I so afraid of that fact? Yes. Um, why am I afraid to even consider yes. it? And we're, we're making a case for abstinence throughout the book. Oh, yeah. As well as we're making a case for, uh, for moderation in yep. a way. And um, it's important, like, uh, well, people are afraid of it because they're just trying to scare themselves straight. That's why they're afraid That is of, why hearing that they can moderate and parents think that works so they want us to do that too but it doesn't work it doesn't and and if they look at it most of them know that yeah you know that's why i kind of ease into it is you know they they know ultimately that uh that there's there's they have the best chance their loved one has the best chance of changing their life learning what we have to teach them yeah so uh I took you down this road about families and everything and away fine. from you, Michelle, but is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Well, I, you know, I want to say my, my passion doesn't just lie in addiction. My, on, my undergraduate work was in psychology and mental health. Um, and we, as somebody that got a uh, diagnosis at a very young age, as a young, heavy substance user young woman, um, just because somebody has a mental health diagnosis does not mean that they are going to struggle forever. It doesn't mean that they're, it may not even be real. Um, you know, I'm not on medications. I don't have bipolar. I kind of have a dynamic personality. I did struggle in my 20s with with some emotional upheaval in my life. But I was also going through a lot of different stuff with the learning about the substance use part of things too. So, um, So I just want people to know that um, that that doesn't a mental health diagnosis or dual diagnosis does not preclude you from being able to do the freedom model. You can do it. Yeah. We address it, um, and uh, and you can be free completely. I had quintuple diagnosis. You did. I, yeah, I had, <laughs> I had at least four diagnoses. <laughs> That's awesome. Beyond addiction before I came in here. <laughs> Bipolar. Yep. Uh, depression, That's, generalized yeah. anxiety, social anxiety. Those were, I had at least yeah, those four. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm ADD. I mean, I think I'm, I think I still have that issue, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, thanks. This was a great talk, Michelle. Yeah, it was. I had enjoyed myself. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by The Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, the Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, you can check out soberforever.net. Once again, that's soberforever.net. Thank you to everyone who helps make this podcast happen. Editing is done by Christopher Dunbar and Daniel Hidalgo. Thank you to our incredible staff at Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model Retreats, without whom none of this would be possible.